But what you learn as a leader, if you aspire to be a leader as opposed to a manager or a boss, is you really have to be able to invest in people. You have to understand what's important to them, what worries them, how you can help them, what are their aspirations in terms of their own career. And if you're able to make that personal commitment, that in turn helps you unlock their potential. That was Bill Heath, Vice President of Medicine's Innovation Hub for Eli Lilly and Company, talking about how he and his team are driving change in both the Lilly research community as well as the greater Indianapolis and Indiana community. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Bill, welcome to the Freedom Forum, and thank you so much for joining us this month. Will you begin by telling our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that have led to you becoming what I consider a hardcore chemist, a chemistry leader, and now the vice president of Lilly's Medicines Innovation Hub? Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Angela. You know, I've always been interested in science since I was very young. I think I told my parents when I was six years old, I wanted to be a scientist when I grew up. Not quite sure I knew what a scientist uh, really did at that point in time, but it was at a time when science was very dominant in the country and seemed like a pretty interesting idea to be able to be someone who could actually sort of understand how the world worked and try to help uh, move things forward. And so, you know, I, I was always interested in biology, but I actually, I fell in love with chemistry when I was a junior in high school. I had a chemistry class and it's like the world just opened up. And so that began my sort of journey of both biology and chemistry. And so I actually sort of have moved across both throughout both my academic career and then ultimately my professional career as well. So when I joined Lilly, I actually had a fairly unusual background in that I had started as a chemist, became a biochemist, and then a cell biologist. And so I teased my young employees that I was practicing chemical biology before it was actually a, a discipline, if you will. And of course, they just roll their eyes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, given the fact that I have broad interest and a lot of curiosity about how things work, I did not... I did not limit myself in terms of the opportunities I would take on at Lilly. And I was the uh, bit of the oddball who, when problems arose, I was always interested in finding solutions. I tell people that oftentimes we have a lot of smart scientists who can identify the problems, but far less who are interested in actually digging in to try to solve them. And I was one of those uh, individuals who decided I wanted to solve them, which then led me to be tapped to take on roles that moved me across the business. Yeah. And I've worked in 11 different areas of the company across both uh, discovery and development and through the commercialization of medicines, which is what has allowed me to sort of take on the role I have today with a group that spans from idea generation and discovery all the way through to global launch of medicines uh, across all therapeutic areas. 
That's really fascinating. So I didn't appreciate that you were once a biologist because, of course, you know, that's kind of my background. And I give so much solace and consideration to the chemist, which to me is just so challenging. So the ability to to kind of cross both is, is really interesting. So I recently learned from you or about you that you're a Kentucky native, which I didn't appreciate. I am as well. And so when I originally joined Lilly in the biology department, I remember you being, you know, a fairly esteemed leader, even at that point in the chemistry organization, although we never really worked together because, again, I was in that biology side and you at that point had made it to what what I recall being in the chemistry leadership chain. How has your background, being from Kentucky, semi-Southern background and upbringing affected not just your career, but your growth and career trajectory, your ability to be able to move across disciplines and still find what, what joy you found in that original scientific chemistry class? Yes. Yeah, so I spent the first 18 years of my life, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and um always decided or I always knew that I wasn't going to stay there likely forever. Uh, some things that kind of influenced me were getting very strong motivation from my parents, understanding that the world was changing rapidly and having skills and being able to utilize those skills would be really important. And also seeing people sort of take an easier path, if you will. So foregoing science or engineering and I decided, uh, and maybe this is just part of my stubbornness streak, is that I was going to take on the hardest road possible, which meant to me I would not only go to undergraduate, but also go to graduate school as well. Now, my father, when I first told him I wanted to be a scientist, thought I was going to become a doctor, and I really didn't have any interest in becoming a doctor. I had that same story, yes. But I did the next best thing, which was to actually understand how I could take science, particularly chemistry, and utilize it in the pursuit of advancing human health, which is what ultimately led me to the pharmaceutical industry. You know, first generation student, first student to actually graduate from college on either side of the family, little bit uh, ahead of my times, if you will. I'm I'm glad to see that uh, my brother's children have all done very well. My children are moving forward as well. And so, Maybe I started a trend. I don't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. Man, we have so much in common. Both Kentucky natives, both first-generation graduates, absolutely did the biology and chemistry thing. I, too, um, double majored in biology and chemistry. I didn't know we had that much in common. That's really interesting. So you indicated that your father kind of, I had that same experience of being good in math and science and people just assuming that meant you were going to be a doctor. And so maybe that's a Kentucky thing too, that when we, you and I were growing up, there weren't so many opportunities readily exposed or or readily exposable to students to know what other options were in science besides the medical field. I think if you had grown up in a city like Boston or perhaps San Francisco or Chicago, where there clearly were organizations that were very heavily scientifically inclined, or you had family members who were either engineers, I've met individuals who are like third generation engineers. Uh, And so that probably paints a very different picture. But the idea of somebody becoming a hardcore scientist was very unusual. Now, I think 
I didn't meet so much as absolute resistance as I did people just being a little bit perplexed as to why I would want to do that. And then of course, they were always trying to jump to the obvious, well, you want to go into the oil and gas industry or the paint companies. And I'm like, good Lord, not for me. Right. I wanted to do something that I thought was a little bit more challenging. Not that those aren't good disciplines to be in and, and worthwhile work, but I was really interested in thinking about how I could move life sciences forward. So I recall clear recollections at my time at Lilly, watching and sometimes struggling through peers or leadership who were heavy core scientists, scientific leadership, then becoming managers and organizational leaders. And unquestionably, at this point, we appreciate that the skills to be a technical leader or a technical person, practitioner, are not necessarily the same skills it takes to be a great people person or people developer or organizational leader. So what attributes and or characteristics do you possess that you believe have enabled you to kind of successfully make that transition from being, you know, hardcore in the science and the technical field and then more transitioning to where you are now with being more of a people developer, a, a recruiter and identifier of talent and potential talent, not just what a person's doing today, but what they may be able to do in 10, 20 years. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I, I think that many scientists are trained and are excellent technically, but oftentimes that's done in the context of fairly isolated situations. I have to admit early in my leadership journey, I was probably a lot stronger on the IQ side than the EQ side for sure. But what you learn as a leader, if you aspire to be a leader as opposed to a manager or a boss, is you really have to be able to invest in people. You have to understand what's important to them, what worries them, how you can help them, what are their aspirations in terms of their own career? And if you're able to make that personal commitment, that in turn helps you unlock their potential. And what I started to see over time was the fact that as I could sort of like open doors for people or even show them where the door was, that really energized them and also made the team stronger. I mean, the reality is, is that technical leaders like at Lilly have three responsibilities. One is around technical excellence, but you're going to have a lot of other very smart individuals working with you. Hopefully some of them are even smarter and so they can make most of the decisions. You're going to have to be the decision maker, but once again, smart leaders let their team make the majority of the decisions and only weigh in when they have to. But the one role that you have that is uniquely yours, though it's not solely yours, is setting the tone around the culture, mm -hmm. setting the tone around how we're bringing in talent, how we're developing that talent and retaining that talent. And the goal is to build very strong teams, uh, which also then leads us into having very different backgrounds, very different ways of thinking. And once you turn those powerful teams loose, they, they will literally do the, make the impossible possible. Absolutely. That's very powerful. Tell me about that transition and, you know, how you've been able to make that transition. You, you spoke to it just, just now, but really from that technical leader to learning and developing what I, what seems to me and sounds like to me is empathy for people and really wanting to see your team 
do well in their, not just their current role, but also in their career trajectory, their lifetime goals, their professional and personal goals? How do you begin to make that transition where you're not just focused on the current bottom line, the current task at hand, the current corporate goals, and also really making that investment into people? Yeah, that's kind of a complex set of of questions in some ways, but I'll try to be brief. Part of it is understanding that particularly as a leader, there is a way to synergize what I would call shorter term business goals Mm -hmm. with the long term strategic goals. So I try to think five to 10 years in the future. So when I'm hiring talent, I'm very well aware of the capabilities that they have, both in terms of training and also experience. But I'm trying to envision the type of contributor they can be in five to 10 years with the right opportunities and how we can invest to actually ensure that that potential is realized. Now, in, in some respects, early in my career, I had, it was funny, I remember doing, this is probably about four years into the company, the team did one of these psychological profiles. Sure. and. I scored very high on empathy, which nobody else in the team did, which led everybody to sort of give me a hard time. But I didn't actually know how to unlock that. I was still too wired into the hardcore science, Mm -hmm. driving the science, all about the science and not about the people. And so the hard journey was basically making a lot of mistakes, trying to learn from those mistakes and understanding that investing in people is ultimately the game here. You know, I've been involved with a lot of really cool science. I've been able to contribute to moving medicines from idea to uh, the commercial realm. But the thing that I'm the most proud of are the people that I've been able to bring into the organization and grow for time. That is my legacy. That's really fascinating and, and it's so powerful because I don't know that all leaders think about that. And This is why we have so many business leaders on so we can share that kind of wisdom that does typically just come over time and experience. So thank you for that. Let's talk about the fact that you are a majority male, right? You've you've had the benefit of that experience. Yet I've been very impressed with your stance on so many real world diversity, equity and inclusion issues that are affecting us right now. Again, you know, I knew of you at Lilly, but we didn't really know each other. We didn't really interact with each other. And so I've been very impressed to see so many of your positions on so many things that are happening currently. And I want to know from that vantage point as a majority male executive leader of such a huge organization, particularly within Lilly's infrastructure, when in your career did you begin to become aware or sensitive to what I would assert is the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in, you know, the scientific and technical fields, just generally, not even in Lilly, just generally, nationally. And what has that personal evolution and that growth been like for you? How have you either educated yourself or sensitized yourself to have the kind of empathy that you talk about? Well, I mean, ultimately, a lot of this goes back to long before my professional career. Growing up, I was very fortunate to have two parents who emphasized the importance of respecting everybody and being willing to be open to differences amongst people. Uh, That was reinforced by 
the school I went to, which was a Catholic school, and um, you know, there's a lot of focus on equality and justice, if you will. And so, but you know, I also grew up at a time in the '60s where it was quite clear that the country was going through a lot of change, but there were a lot of challenges, and that people were not being treated equally, and that that lack of justice and inequality had roots long back into the history of the country and into the culture. And personally, I just thought that was wrong. And so all of my life, I've always tried to just treat people as who they are, not what they are. And I mean, obviously you're aware that we're all different. Okay, that's great. I actually think that's the most wonderful thing about humanity is that we're all different from one another, but we can all bring different experiences, perspectives. We all have different challenges as well. And together we're better. I mean, in truth, it's actually easier to accept respect and love than it is to hate. And so I, I just want to try to make things better for folks and, you know, Talent is everywhere in this world, but opportunities are not. There are a lot of barriers, both obvious and non-obvious. And so I see myself as a leveler to level the playing field and invite everybody to the table. Because if you can unlock that potential, you build stronger teams and you also build stronger communities. Yeah. What you say is so powerful because those are things that I believe and so many people believe that are seemingly very questionable right now. That doesn't just seem to be a understood uh, fact pattern in this current climate. So I appreciate that. And I particularly appreciate that you lead that way because that is what sets culture. Those type of cultures are the type that build loyal employees who are willing to do their best for any organization. And and so I, I also know that some of your colleagues who are some of my dear friends who are Latina scientists, who are very passionate and extremely involved in being advocates for the same things I've always been passionate about, diversity and equity and inclusion in STEM fields, because that's where we kind of sit and, and, and do our work as scientists and at Lilly generally. And as you sit amongst so many people who clearly have the same value system that you do, but you also have the opportunity to be exposed to many C-suite executives in the state, in the city, who may not have the opportunities to be exposed to so many people who are different than them, may not have grown up with the same value set that you've described. What do you hear from those leaders? What are some of the reservations and some of the challenges that organizations within our state are still facing with regard to implementing global DEI practices in our business organizations? Well, I, I think that uh Obviously, everybody is on a journey here. I think that at times people allow the perceived complications of what it would take to get to a more equitable society and concerns about how to get there to stymie them, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's easier to say no than to say yes and actually push that yes. I think part of it is a lot of people just haven't had exposure to enough diversity, for lack of a better way of describing it, to really understand just how wonderful those colleagues are. And so what you don't understand, you may not appreciate the importance of 
pushing on those issues. And then I think a lot of people don't actually understand the real challenges that people face. Right. Uh, the reality is, is as a white male, I have never walked down the street and had racial slurs yelled at me. I have never been in fear for my life because of racial profiling. But I know many people who have, who are people who are not like me. And so it's very easy for me to actually, they're part of my family in my mind. And so my family is hurt, so I feel hurt. Right. That's powerful. That's very powerful, Will. And I thank you for sharing that with us. Again, you just recognize, you know, so many of the differences that you as a non-diverse person just don't have to think about or don't have to deal with. But how critical has it been for you, either from your background and seemingly through your career trajectory, because certainly when I was there, Lily was very diverse, in having exposure to so many diverse people. I mean, I feel like coming from Kentucky, and again, you were in Louisville, I was in Berea, Kentucky. So those, those in and of itself are completely different environments. You had exposure to more diversity in and of itself than I did. But certainly Lily is very diverse and absolutely opened my world to even more diversity, international diversity, as compared to just black and white, which is what I had kind of grown up with. But how important has it been for you to have this kind of diverse perspective and these diverse people in your life to kind of share these experiences with you over the course of your life, your career? Oh, it's been very important. I'm very fortunate that I have colleagues who are very open with me about the challenges that they face, including many reverse mentors who can sort of help me understand what they've been through, what their colleagues are going through. And oftentimes I find that input to be extremely valuable in terms of helping me understand how I can influence the broader organization. Sometimes it's just the little things where people don't even realize that they're giving offense or they're not putting enough weight in terms of trying to help people. And so being able to get those perspectives and actually learn and hopefully grow from that information has been essential. Yeah, you, you just hit on a nugget that I want to focus on a little more. I'm in the context of writing a conversation about lifelong learning. And you seem to as well be a person who is always open to learning more, whatever that can be. How has your desire as a scientist and just that what brings a scientist, makes a scientist that person always looking to explore, always looking to find answers to problems or challenges. How has that also that kind of need or desire for more learning, more exposure? How has that helped you in your diversity journey? How has that kind of driven your sensibilities to some of the challenges that people unlike yourself may face? Well, th this is going to sound a little funny, but uh, my scientific training has allowed me to become very intentional in yeah. terms of that exploration and doing assessments of what seems to work well and what's not working well. And also uh, my team will tell you that I'm uh, never satisfied. As a matter of fact, I just uh, uh, had a discussion about we should pick holes in some of our recruiting strategies because while they, we've gotten some great results, I want us to be even greater. Yeah. And of course, I think at times people think that I'm being critical and I'm like, no, 
I'm not being critical. I think the team has done a wonderful job, but I think that we need to continue to try to be even better. It's like, you know, Dave Ricks always asks this question, what does great look like in your space? And I think it's an awesome question, to be honest, because unless you ask yourself, what does great look like? Uh, You'll never get there. You might be content with just being good. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Bill Heath, Vice President of Medicine's Innovation Hub for Eli Lilly and Company, on this month's episode of the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Part of what it sounds like to me you have become comfortable with is being uncomfortable, being in places or around people that genuinely or initially may not be necessarily your comfort zone. So can you talk to us and particularly other non-diverse leaders that may be out there who are challenged in getting out of their own comfort zone in order to better understand some of the real life DNI issues that affect, you know, their personnel, their workforce, people in their community, their family, et cetera. And how can they better be empowered to affect change if they allow themselves to get a bit uncomfortable? I would say start by putting yourself out there and just start talking to people You know, I know many leaders whose intentions are good in this direction, but they don't know how to get started. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They don't necessarily know how to engage. And, you know, my advice to them is you just have to have conversations with folks and come with good intent. And they will understand that in the early days, perhaps the questions you're asking might not be as artful as as you or they might like, but they understand that you're seeking to learn. And if people know that you're really sincere in terms of your intentions, I mean, going back to the comment about putting yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable, the observation I would make is, is once you get to know people, regardless of the situation or the background, it becomes very comfortable. It just becomes part of your new norm. But it's okay to acknowledge that perhaps in that transition, you are going to feel somewhat uncomfortable. I appreciate that because you seem to share a view I have too, that diversity and being around so many people who initially I would never know or experiences I would never have, have truly define the fabric of what I think is so wonderful in my life. Those are the very experiences that I look back on and I'm so fond of and so thankful that, you know, oh my goodness, if I wouldn't be in this position with this particular person in this situation, I would never have this experience and how much I would have missed without that experience, whatever that is. And I think you have also been able to find the beauty in that as compared to you know, the fear. I mean, the other thing is, and and I don't say this lightly, but those of us who have been afforded a degree of security, I would go so far as to say privilege, have a special obligation to step forward and be seen. Yeah. All too often I see organizations, so I'm connected with DEI personnel across the industry. I see in many cases 
they are essentially turfing that out to individuals who come from underrepresented communities. And while it's great to have uh, those folks involved because they clearly have greater insight and a lot of passion, you have to make sure that the rest of the team is coming forward as well. So let's change focus a bit because you mentioned, you know, part of what got you involved in science was that science was really prominent. You, it was at a time when, you know, science was really a focus. There was a lot of reverence for science and scientific thought and research, et cetera. But recently with COVID, that's been challenged quite a bit. And even as a scientist myself, I was challenged during these past couple years with all the doubt and questioning of science and data in a way that I've never experienced in my lifetime. I don't know that we've experienced in generally in our country. And that coupled with so much racial and social justice and injustice, movements for justice. So I'm wondering, you know, how did you experience that time with, you know, facts and science and data being really challenged in a way that I suspect you haven't experienced either? How has COVID kind of changed your view or vantage point on science or the nation's acceptance of science and data? What are your thoughts there? I think it's more about society's acceptance of science and sort of a deep understanding that there is a large segment of the population who doesn't necessarily trust the system and potentially are getting a lot of information via social media or other channels that are distorting the picture for them. Uh, it was very disheartening, obviously, to be working like crazy to try to bring solutions to patients and seeing data where, you know, whether it was us or others that was looking like it was going to move in a direction that was going to help people. And then ultimately seeing this outright rejection, if you will, even around fairly common sense approaches like isolation uh, for a period of time to sort of quell the pandemic. That is a strategy that has worked for many centuries. It's a, it's an oldie but a goodie. And right. yet, for whatever reason, people somehow saw some of these things as infringing on other priorities. I mean, the reality is, is that we had over a million people die in this country. And oftentimes that was hitting people who already had underlying health conditions very heavily. And, you know, there are a lot of estimates floating around about how many people could have been saved if folks had actually sort of been a little bit more careful or a little bit more willing to cooperate. It's, you know, it's kind of hard to know because you don't run the control experiment, but it's very unfortunate. But I think it has clearly opened people's eyes about the fact that not everybody sees all this wonderful technology that has been created or will be created as being totally beneficial. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was very interesting. It was an interesting time, not just for science and data, but also with, as I mentioned previously, the social and racial um, injustice and all that happened in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. What did you experience? Were there any revelations that you found during that time in COVID that you may not have already known or things you thought you knew that kind of got solidified during that time that, you know, you really learned about even yourself or 
our society with regard to racial and social injustices and what's necessary for justice to really, you know, occur in this country. Well, if anything, it's just energized me to redouble my efforts and really try to work even harder to try to bring about change. You know, those events were very tragic and the fact that they were very public was quite challenging for people to deal with. You know, perhaps the the one thing that I would note is that these are not new issues. The fact that they're now being filmed and put on the internet. Right. But these are situations that have been happening for hundreds of years in this country. And the fact that people seemed shocked and surprised was perhaps the biggest revelation. I mean, it, it absolutely is. It, it is the, you can't deny it anymore, right? It's right in front of your eyes. And that, I think, was shocking, truly, genuinely shocking for a lot of people, including myself. So let's talk about what you're now focusing on in your current role. Because when I was at Lilly early on, I remember Lilly having a very established recruitment program for diverse talent at HBCUs. I remember that specifically. And I think over time that may have, you know, piddled out or expired. But it, it seems to certainly there is unquestionably a a renewed focus on HBCUs, particularly in light of COVID and the pandemic and George Floyd and all that happened during that time. And so your organization is part of one that is also focusing on recruitment, specifically at HBCUs. I talk to Maria all the time and she's flying all over the country and going to uh, career fairs and job fairs and school fairs trying to recruit diverse talent, which is phenomenal. But tell us about some of the policies, procedures, programs, initiatives, et cetera, that you and your leadership team have created or implemented to focus specifically on increasing the diversity, equity, inclusion within the technical ranks at Lilly's organization, whether that be recruiting at HBCUs or other institutions that may have been overlooked in the past. Well, obviously, at a, at a corporate level, the company has made commitments to diversifying the workforce. I give Dave Ricks a lot of credit for that. He has clearly sort of set the bar high, and we continue to set it higher, and we are measuring ourselves against those goals. From my team's perspective, and more broadly from an R&D perspective, we are working very hard to ensure that we are bringing in diverse talent, that we are ensuring that when we do uh, interview for jobs, that we are interviewing a diverse slate of candidates. We are working to ensure that the interviewing team is also diverse as well. Believe it or not, those factors do uh, help level the playing field, if you will. And then by just naturally, as we go out and we recruit from campuses, we've been very successful in terms of the amount of diversity that we've been able to attract even from an internship perspective and also from a direct hire. Now, we do have some specific efforts. We had traditionally had some very strong ties with FAMU and with Howard, but as we were bringing in talent from other schools that we didn't traditionally have strong ties with, I posed the question to three individuals. Now, these are three individuals, uh, Mariah Brown, Cameron Tillman, and Angela Walker, who were literally one to one and a half years at the company. And only one of them had come from one of our focus schools. And I just asked the question, I said, how do we actually make broader connections with other HBCUs? 
And they came up with this idea of creating what they called HBCU Day, where we would invite students to Corporate Center. They would present posters. We would give awards. They would get tours. They would get to interact with a lot of professionals. And we just recently did the second one that was much bigger than even the pilot that we had done last year. Incredible, incredible talent, incredibly energizing for the students. We've also gotten very heavily involved in a program called SMDP, our Scientific Mentoring of Diverse Professionals, where students are actually paired with an industry mentor. I'm actually one of those mentors, other senior leaders also serving as mentors as well, where we can give focused guidance to those individuals as they look to transition in the industry. That's really fantastic. So I didn't make it to HBCU today. I did get an invitation. I had a conflict, but I'm hoping to be there next year if you have it again, because just that exposure, right, of a diverse student, I know how much of a difference it would have made to me as an undergraduate student, a brand new first generation college student who doesn't know exactly what the opportunities are going to be once you graduate with that biology degree or chemistry degree. So that kind of exposure is absolutely absolutely invaluable. So uh, we're getting to the end, but I want to ask you about kind of, we've talked about, you know, Lily's focus on diversity, your group, your organization, you personally, but I want to talk about the community also. Earlier, I guess it was last year, I had Pete Yonkman of Cook Medical on, and he spoke a lot about conscious entrepreneurship, the thought around Cook not only seeking to positively impact DEI for their employees, but also doing so in a way that has a positive impact on the communities, particularly in Indiana, whether that's Bloomington or up here on the east side of Indianapolis, and how important it was for, you know, senior leaders to get beyond just writing a check or issuing a diversity statement, but truly getting into the community and making inroads with regard to how our corporations can more make ties with our community and have impact in that regard. So I want to ask you a similar question about how are you and your team enabling Lilly to engage in that kind of conscious entrepreneurial practice where, you know, you're certainly diversifying the internal workplace at Lilly, which is definitely important and necessary, but how is that also impacting the greater Indianapolis or Indiana community? Well, the, one, one of the uh, side effects, if you will, of both the COVID pandemic and seeing the disproportionate you know, hit that occurred on minority communities and then also in the light of the racial and social justice issues that we've already spoken on, Lily has taken a very bold stance in terms of being engaged in the community and trying to make a difference. One of these is actually increasing the amount of work that we do with minority-owned businesses. I believe that last year, the amount that we spent with minority-owned businesses was $358 million, which translates to about $700 million in economic impact. It's Those are the numbers are the roughly in addition, we're looking to build sustainable collaborations with many groups. So whether it's Black, Latino, many other organizations, we're looking to be very engaged. So it's our people's time, not just money. And I mean, we live in the communities that we work in. And so we want to be part of a better Indianapolis, part of a better Boston, part of a better San Diego, et cetera. And so we are looking to engage. It energizes our employees tremendously. 
to know that they can be part of something bigger than themselves and see that it's not just about Lily writing a check, but we're actually putting sweat equity into the process as well. Yeah. And so I see this as continuing to grow over time. So, you know, you and I have been around long enough where, to your point, it's not about what we're doing actively, but now trying to get, recruit, retain, advance the next generation, right? Really beginning to pour some of our expertise and knowledge and experiences into the next generation in order to make a better Indianapolis, a better Indiana. As you think about, you know, some of our other corporate organizations, organizations within the city or the state. Give us some advice on what you believe our corporate leaders, whether in an official title or not, but considered to be corporate leaders, can continue to do to be seriously actionable in increasing and improving DEI in our state businesses and our state organizations. And then any resources that you would suggest with regard to getting a little more comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable getting a little more comfortable with some of the topics that we've talked about today. I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing that many organizations, many companies are coming together and sharing best practices and also understanding that by working together, they can be a bit of a force multiplier in the community. The key though is sustainability. Oftentimes people can start initiatives with a lot of energy and a lot of good intent but it takes continued pushing to actually drive forward down the field. And this is where I think that people have to understand they're running a marathon, not a sprint, and they need to sort of continue to test what's working, what's not working, and also encourage each other. I mean, we have some great conversations with some of our major counterparts here in the city where we're cheering each other on in terms of you know, best practices, what's working, because together we can actually make a better community happen. Lily in isolation or Cummins or Rolls Royce or Cook, we can do something, but together we can be much stronger. And then hopefully that mass, uh, that center of gravity, if you will, attracts others to the banner as well. Yeah, yeah. So is there such a organization or such a, you know, communal force with so many of the major players in the city around DEI and really, I don't know of that. So I'm asking. I think a lot of it tends to be informal and tends to also be channeled through some of the normal business forums that exist. Sure. But it's become a much stronger part of the conversation. And so, again, finishing off, any resources or tools, tips you would offer that have helped you kind of get to this point? I mean, I, I appreciate that you are a Kentucky guy. You have a sense of empathy initially, but that's been a, seemingly been a growth process over the course of time. So, again, any tools you would offer to help people along that journey? As you said, we're all kind of in different stages of that journey. What would you offer? I, I would suggest to people that they actually talk to the individuals in the organizations that have had success and also don't just ask for what did you do, but ask why did you do it, what worked, what didn't work. We all tend to learn from others. Yeah. And so it's not a playbook. You also have to understand how you can be able to execute whatever approaches you're taking in the context of your organization, where you're starting from, what you might see as the challenges. But don't be afraid to reach out to others. I, I'm more than willing to talk to colleagues about 
what we've been doing. I'm actually very proud of what we're doing, not only in terms of my team, but also the broader Lilly. I think we've made a lot of progress. We've learned a lot along the way. I'm very open in terms of sharing those learnings. And so to me, being willing to just engage in the conversation is the the best way to start. Well, thank you for all your time here. Is there any final thoughts, any nuggets of wisdom that we may not have addressed that you'd like to share with our audience before we leave? I mean, the country is changing a lot. And to a point that you raised earlier, there are a lot of challenges at this point in time. I believe in this country. I believe in the strength of its people. I believe in the sense of purpose. But we also have to be knowledgeable about the fact that things haven't always gone in an ideal way. You have to be willing to actually understand the not so good and integrate that with the good. It's the uh, synergy of the and as opposed to the tyranny of the are. And I see too many people who want to take a position on one side or the other and basically make that the lens that they're viewing the world through. We, we all have to work together. This country is strong by the nature of the people that we have had come here. We are a nation of immigrants. And so, you know, that's just been the story of success for this country. We're very unique in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Those are powerful words, and I thank you for sharing them with us. Again, thank you, Bill, for sharing some time with us, giving us some insights that we otherwise wouldn't have and couldn't have gotten, particularly from the vantage point of being a scientist as a um, at Lilly, who is now trying to transition to being a person who's looking for the next level of diverse talent and making sure that everyone gets a fair shot in, in your organization. Thank you so much for all you're doing, and thanks for being here with us us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Bill Heath, and thanks to you for joining us on this 21st episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community.